Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 35, Pressburg and Naples. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our last episode on Napoleon's masterpiece at the Battle of Austerlitz, a battle which reverberates to this day as one of military history's tactical masterpieces. Now, we ended last episode briefly covering the immediate effects from the battle, but today we're going to take a much deeper dive into the aftermath and the peace, or rather lack thereof, that ensued after the smoke had finally dissipated into the cold winter sky from the battlefield. We're also going to talk about the rest of the Italian campaign, which will officially bring an end to the War of the Third Coalition. And so, over the course of these next two episodes, we're going to be doing some fast-forwarding, as well as rewinding, to make sure we capture all of the action in a relatively organized manner. And so, without all of that preamble out of the way, let's not waste any time, as I am now back from a little mini-vacation, and I do appreciate everyone's patience, for letting me get this episode out a little bit later than usual. And let's get back into the episode and the action because we do have a lot to cover today. Now, after scanning the battlefield for his wounded, Napoleon retreated back to his headquarters to change his clothes and bathe for the first time in over a week. It had been a long, arduous, and dangerous journey from Boulogne to the battlefields deep into the Austrian interior. But Napoleon now stood looking out over a battlefield that might as well have represented the rest of the European continent. His long-held ambition of bringing the Rhine and Austria to their knees realized, he now began the process of working with his defeated foes on establishing a new continental order. In the day after the battle, Emperor Francis of Austria extended an olive branch to his French counterpart, realizing that he was indeed his equal, royal blood or not. At 2 p.m. on December 4, 1805, Emperors Napoleon of France and Francis of Austria met for the first time in person by a fire 10 miles south of Austerlitz, an otherwise innocuous little hamlet which now would become famous for all times. By all accounts, the meeting was cordial, and the two even exchanged embraces, both showing respect for each other and the brave soldiers who laid their lives down in one of history's most famous engagements. Napoleon would relate to Talleyrand that Francis was eager to make peace at the first possible moment, and after they shook hands with this guarantee assured, Napoleon mounted his horse and returned to Austerlitz, a conquering hero to his men, a modern-day Alexander the Great, not much older than Alexander after his famous victory at Gaugamela, which also was the final death blow to a long-storied empire. But more on that last part in a second. Because remarking on Napoleon's arrival to camp, one of the recovering soldiers remarked in his writings, quote, a strange sight for the philosopher to reflect on an emperor of Germany come to humble himself by suing for peace to the son of a small Corsican family, not long a sub-lieutenant of artillery, whose talents, good fortune, and the courage of the French soldier had raised to the summit of power and made the arbiter of the destinies of Europe. Now, there were mixed feelings back in the French government as to what to make of the Austrians in the immediate aftermath of Austerlitz. Some, Talleyrand included, had wanted to make Francis and the Austrians an ally. 
Napoleon even wrote years later that Francis was so moral that he never made love to anyone but his wife. But he stopped short of wanting this pious ruler as a friend. He believed that as long as France ruled Italy, and Napoleon did intend for that to continue, as we will see in a second, Austria would always be bellicose towards her. And one could argue that, at the time, this was a potential missed opportunity. Having a combined Franco-Austrian alliance to check both Prussia and Russia on the continent likely would have proven advantageous for both sides. And I do get the impression that Napoleon personally respected Francis, even if he may not have looked up to him. He was not as complimentary towards his Russian and Prussian counterparts at the time, however. Writing of Tsar Alexander after Auschwitz, quote, He has shown neither talent nor bravery. And I guess, to be fair to Alexander, he was at least present at Auschwitz. But it was Francis who did meet Napoleon in person, which I would imagine must have been a terrifying prospect to the young Alexander. In any event, I digress, because now it was time to negotiate the peace. Speaking of Prussia, though, it was actually they, not Austria, who would sign the first treaty after Austerlitz. With the Third Coalition now basically in shambles, Prussia and France decided to come together to sign a treaty of friendship, the Treaty of Schönbrunn. Prussia, if we remember, had recently agreed with Britain and Russia to enter the war should France violate her territory. But she decided that with the Third Coalition defeated, they might as well just appease France to save her own skin. Also, have I mentioned how weak Frederick Wilhelm was? But that aside, the treaty stated that Hanover, which while nominally British was under French occupation, would be given to Prussia, with no consent from Britain, in exchange for the smaller territories of Ansbach, Neuchâtel, and Cleve. It was such an attractive offer to Prussia that they signed it at the first instant, abandoning their third coalition allies only a month after joining them. It is a miracle that they were even allowed to later join in on the fourth coalition, because needless to say, Britain was apoplectic at the thought that Prussia would play politics with a principality that was not even technically hers, least one that belonged to the King of Great Britain. But that's exactly what she did, and Prussia also committed in the treaty to close her ports to British shipping, probably their biggest concession, Napoleon. It was, in short, a maddening treaty for the British as well as her allies. But again, what were they to do? They had been thoroughly defeated and had zero leverage. Even the man who negotiated the treaty for Prussia, Count Christian Graf von Hagwitz, said as such, quote, France is all-powerful, and Napoleon is the man of the century. What have we to fear if united with him? Which brings us, of course, to the more famous treaty, which essentially ended the War of the Third Coalition, at least in Central Europe, the Treaty, or the Peace, of Pressburg. Now, after shining Schönbrunn, Napoleon was unusually suspicious of the rumors he heard about the goings-on back in Paris. He was critical, as he often was, of the influence many of the big bankers and lawyers were having over the government he was unable to oversee while he was on campaign. And he was also leery of the rather liberal writings from the newspapers that were beginning to celebrate the rumors of peace on the continent. Napoleon didn't want to make it seem as though France was letting her guard down, and indeed, he was more concerned with the terms the peace brought than of the peace itself, something the average citizen certainly was hoping for after all these years of war. Nevertheless, those terms would be agreed to on December 26, 1805 in the city of Pressburg, modern-day Bratislava in Slovakia, and what we now call the Peace, or the Treaty, of Pressburg. 
signed between Johann I Joseph, Prince of Liechtenstein, and Hungarian Count Ignac Guele from Austria and Talleyrand from France, the treaty would have significant consequences for both the immediate and long-term futures of Central Europe, some of which are even felt to this day. Now, among the most important pieces was that it brought Austria out of the War of the Third Coalition and established, at least temporarily, peace and amity between the French and the Austrians. But make no mistake, the French were the clear winners in the treaty when it came to the territorial concessions. Pressburg stated that Austria would confirm Napoleon's sister, Eliza, as the princess of the principalities of Lucca and Piombino. It also transferred most of what it owned in Venice to the Kingdom of Italy, mostly Istria and Dalmatia. It ceded numerous territories in southern Germany to the French in Bavaria, namely Tyrol, Franconia, and Vorarlberg, while they were then reorganized into a new kingdom. Five Danubian cities were incorporated into the newly formed Kingdom of Württemberg. And then lastly, Baden became a Grand Duchy. Austrian claims on these regions were to be renounced forever and without exception, and Austria also had to recognize Napoleon's title as King of Italy. And while probably petty by today's standards, at the time, this was a significant concession as it practically assured that Napoleon wouldn't have any pretenders to the throne in his newly gained territories. The renunciation of the titles were also important as it meant that Francis likely would have to recognize Napoleon as king of many of his former principalities and duchies and thus he would have potentially taken the title of Holy Roman Emperor. This was one of the many reasons why Francis decided to renounce his title as Holy Roman Emperor eight months later, which, of course, eventually led to the dissolution of the empire entirely. Now, we'll touch on that more next episode, but suffice it to say, the Peace of Pressburg laid the foundation for the end of an empire that had begun 1,005 years earlier with the crowning of Charlemagne. And lastly, Austria was to pay France an indemnity of 40 million francs, which, considering they had just conceded a sixth of their income due to the lost territory with the stroke of a pen, was a considerable amount. Now, as for the Austrians, they weren't completely hosed. Well, I mean, they were, but they did receive some concessions. Napoleon agreed to recognize the independence of Switzerland. Yes, I am laughing internally, too. And Holland. Agreed to recognize the integrity of the rest of the Austrian Empire. And finally, that he would separate the crowns of France and Italy upon his death. Now, the last bit is a little funny because it was something that cost him nothing and didn't really carry any significant meaning. So, save for some cheeky formality, Pressburg was France's, as well as Napoleon's, moment to shine. It was the treaty that brought the mighty Austrians to their knees and ended the War of the Third Coalition once and for all. Except, well, it technically didn't. Because, despite the main theater in Germany closing with Austerlitz, Napoleon's southern flank on the Italian peninsula was still at war. There were still British and Russian soldiers in Naples at the request of their queen, the Austrian Maria Carolina, despite Napoleon's strict warnings against her doing so. Napoleon and Maria Carolina loathed each other, and after the news of Austerlitz had spread through Europe, the British and Russians decided to evacuate Naples before the French force under Massena arrived. This left the paltry Neapolitans up against one of Napoleon's finest marshals, and Napoleon gave orders for Massena to take care of the Neapolitan question. As he put it, quote, I will finally punish that whore. So, we're going to leave Germany for the rest of this episode, 
and take a detour down south to talk about the seldom-mentioned theater of the fighting, especially after Auschwitz, Italy, and really, truly put a bow on the War of the Third Coalition. Now backing up a bit, last we left Marshal Massena, he was busy facing off against Archduke Charles, close on his heels, as Charles retreated back into the Austrian interior. Now before this happened, Naples had requested assistance from the coalition forces, reneging on their promise to Napoleon that they wouldn't join the war. And so as a result, Britain's Lieutenant General James Henry Craig sailed from Malta to Naples with 7,500 men, and Russian General Maurice Lacy brought just short of 15,000 troops from Corfu in late November of 1805. Now despite the fact that the Ulm campaign was about to be won decisively by the French, the British and the Russians were actually confident in their ability to march north and take on the French with their Neapolitan allies, believing that they could then overwhelm Messina's forces. This was furthered by the news that they recently received of Nelson's last stand at Trafalgar, and with the French Navy now out of the question, the coalition forces could be comforted in the fact that they now control the Mediterranean waters should reinforcements be needed to be brought in. It seemed as though, despite the momentum the French were building in Germany, the Allies could at least mount a solid defense, and perhaps recapture, all of the Italian peninsula. But then, the British saw the state of the Neapolitan army. To uh, put it mildly, the Neapolitans were a ragtag bunch. They were disorganized, lacked sufficient training of any kind, and were led by some of the worst generals the coalition forces had to offer. Almost immediately, the British and Russians realized they would be unable to conduct any type of offensive campaign, especially a campaign against an army as formidable as the one Messina possessed. Naples was also plagued by the fact that many of their soldiers were disinterested in fighting a war they felt had little impact on their lives. The Neapolitans then implemented conscription to help improve their paltry numbers, but this proved unpopular and they resorted to the tried and true tactic of recruiting jailed convicts to fight on their behalf. Now, where have we heard that strategy before? Anyway, as a result, Craig and Lacey decided on settling in for a defensive campaign in the event that Messina decided to march south, something which would come to pass, but under entirely different circumstances. Those circumstances, of course, were the news of Austerlitz two weeks later. Now, once it became known that Napoleon had thoroughly defeated the Russian and Austrian armies, Tsar Alexander ordered General Lacey to request an armistice with Messina and to leave Naples at once, and Lacey informed British General Craig that he intended to do so. Upon hearing the news, Craig decided that it was probably best for his men to leave as well, having little to gain in Naples to begin with, and probably more to lose, given the state of the army they would be fighting with. This meant that Naples, only a month off of double-crossing Napoleon, was squarely on their own to face off against a French army which was now highly motivated to punish the Neapolitans for their treason and double-dealing. Now, this prospect terrified the Neapolitan court, but they also refused to have Russian and British troops stationed at key locations throughout their kingdom, something which infuriated Lacey, and he left the country despite initially offering to stay against the Tsar's orders. Now, Craig's men eventually sailed to Messina, where they awaited their naval transports back home to Britain. Naples initially refused them entry and even threatened to treat them as enemies, but eventually they came to their senses and allowed the British to disembark, knowing that they would need their services in any upcoming fighting. Because just as soon as the British left in February of 1806, French Marshal André Massena came knock-knock-knocking on Naples' door. Massena's columns crossed the border on February 8, 1806, 
walking across without facing any resistance from the Neapolitan population. Now this, naturally, terrified the Neapolitan court, and both King Ferdinand and Queen Maria Carolina fled Naples for Sicily to escape the onslaught. I will give Maria Carolina a little slack, though, as she actually waited for the French to cross the border, because Ferdinand had left back in January, leaving his wife to run the country in the event of a French invasion. Chivalry at its finest, indeed. Messina was then left an open road to Naples, and on February 14th, he arrived at the city and just, well, took it. Joseph Bonaparte, who, if we remember, was the official commander of Messina's army, then entered the city in extravagant pomp on the 15th, and he was ordered by Napoleon to take the crown as king of Naples, something which he agreed to, albeit reluctantly, making himself the second Bonaparte to become a European royal in just over a year. Now, Massena's army was split into three divisions spread across the thin southern part of the Italian peninsula, but we're going to concern ourselves with the division under General Jean Rainier for now, who commanded the French right with just under 8,000 men. Now, Massena's army as a whole was, as we mentioned earlier, highly motivated, but they were facing increasing hunger, did not receive their pay on time, and they resorted to looting the local population which did not exactly endear the Neapolitans to their newest occupiers. Joseph Bonaparte then ordered Rainier to march down to the Strait of Messina, the small strait which separates the Italian mainland at Calabria from Sicily, to corner the Neapolitans and, if successful, to go after the Bourbon monarchs who had just recently betrayed his brother. And so, on March 9th, after receiving word that the Neapolitans were standing to attack, General Rainier left Naples with 10,000 men to meet them at Campo Tenes, near modern-day Morano Calabro in Calabria. Now, leading the Neapolitans was a royalist French general named Roger de Demas, who commanded around 14,000 men, but only half of whom were regulars, and this would be critical in the oncoming fighting. Demas did little to defend his flanks or his rears, as it would have made retreat difficult, and so he tried his best to concentrate his forces and build up solid defenses for the French advance. But let's just say it didn't exactly work out to plan. Rainier's troops broke camp early and arrived at the battlefield by mid-morning. A howling wind at their backs was said to have blown snow in the faces of the Neapolitans. And though they were in southern Italy, Calabria is mountainous and snowfall is frequent in many of the mountain communes this time of the year. Rainier put one brigade at the front line, ordered his light infantry to turn the enemy right flank, and then placed his reserve in close proximity should they be needed. By the late afternoon, Rainier issued his attack order. As expected, his men attacked Dema's poorly protected right flank, coming around the rear and attacking from all sides. Rainier then ordered a full frontal assault, and general panic ensued within a matter of minutes. Nearly completely surrounded, Dema ordered a retreat, but the small valley and mountainous terrain made the task difficult. The French would end up taking over 2,000 prisoners and as well as the majority of the Neapolitan artillery. The Neapolitans also suffered over 3,000 casualties while the French suffered an unknown number, though it is presumed to be light. The Battle of Campo Tenes was quick, decisive, and devastating. From that moment on, the Neapolitan army ceased to be an effective fighting force, if it was ever really effective at all, and it dissolved over the following weeks as Rainier chased them down the mountains into the Strait of Messina. Following its conclusion, the French essentially assured themselves complete control of southwest Italy. But while Campo Tenes was indeed an overwhelming French victory, it has since become infamous 
and it would be a precursor to the large guerrilla campaign that was waged by the Calabrian peasantry in the years to come. The night after the battle, hungry and tired French soldiers made camp at Morano Calabro and committed violent atrocities on the local population, robbing, raping, and murdering innocent civilians in their thrill of victory. French writer and eyewitness Paul-Louis Corrier described the scene as, quote, one of the most diabolical waged in many years. And it was the beginning of a long and violent struggle between French occupying forces and local guerrillas, especially in Calabria, where many of the locals had little to lose to begin with. Because you see, much of the region was still suffering from the 1783 Calabrian earthquakes that occurred from February to March 1783, killing upwards of 50,000 people. Many of the villages had still not yet been rebuilt over 20 years later, and the peasantry and local population had taken to near anarchism in the face of overwhelming hardships. Vendettas, robberies, and even murders were commonplace, and the Calabrians had little to lose fighting off invading forces. Many did prefer the French to the ruling Bourbon monarchy, but much of this changed over after the occupying French would often plunder small villages and rape the local women. Soon, many militias would form in the countryside, and the back-and-forth struggle would rage for the better part of the next handful of years, which included atrocity and counter-atrocity. Now, we'll return to these rebels throughout our series, but it is a good introduction into the type of local resistance that would become commonplace for the Imperial French forces over the coming decades, especially after the start of the Peninsular War in Spain and Portugal. A lot of these uprisings by the local Calabrians were also successful because many of the main French forces in Massena's army were bogged down trying to capture another important seaside, Fortress City, Gaeta. And that's where we're going to next. Now, as we're one to do over these next couple of episodes, backing up a few weeks, after Naples had been occupied and Rainier sent south, Massena went west to the coast and made a reconnaissance mission at Gaeta. Now, initially, Massena ordered the surrender of Gaeta and assumed such a request would be granted rather easily. But when the French arrived and demanded their surrender, the garrison's commander, the eccentric Prince Louis of Hesse Philipsthal, famously replied by firing off a cannon. Referring to the defenders of the city, he screamed out of a speaking trumpet, quote, Gaeta is not Ulm, Hesse is not Mac. Oh yeah, this guy was crazy, and his men loved him for it. And I mean, come on, how about that burn on Mac, right? That poor guy couldn't even escape the harsh criticism amongst his own contemporary generals. But in any event, as is tradition, let's give a quick sidebar on Prince Louis of Hesse Philipsthal, better known as Prince Hesse. Prince Hesse was born in 1766 in Philipsthal in central Germany. I mean, literally, if you look at its location on a map, I don't think you can find a more centrally located place in the entire country, but that's neither here nor there. He was the son of nobleman William, Landgrave of Hesse Philipsthal, and as was tradition, he became an officer in the military and eventually became a general for the army of the Kingdom of Naples. Princess was, though, how shall I say, a little bit of a wild card. A heavy drinker, he enjoyed partying as well as the finer things in life, something which seems to be a prerequisite for most 19th century nobles. But Prince Hess wasn't exactly obtuse about it. He enjoyed hanging around the average soldier, and he was one of the few noble generals who actually showed a sense of fraternity with his men. Prior to the siege of Gaeta, he committed to drinking less, and by less he said only one bottle a day, baby steps people, and he posted himself in the line of enemy fire alongside his men numerous times. 
So when the siege began, you just knew he was going to offer up quite a bit of fight that some of the other Neapolitan generals were unable to do. And, well, that's precisely what he did. For five grueling months, Masena had to waste men and resources trying to lift the siege over this stubborn town and this stubborn general. Let's take a look at a few examples, shall we? Now, after Messina ordered the siege to commence, the French began digging in their fortifications and moving in artillery. In March, they once again ordered Hess and his men to surrender the fort, to which Hess replied that he would have his answer for them after the breach. That is to say, after the French had broken through their walls and into the city. This guy, right? The French responded in kind by firing cannons into the city. But Hess was not deterred and he ordered his men to fire 80 guns right back at the French, checking them and forcing them back from their siege lines, stunned at what had just transpired. And while the French were building up their siege fortifications, Hess was busy training his ragtag bunch, and they proved up for the task. A month later in April, the same situation occurred. The French ordered his surrender, he refused, they fired, he fired back with more guns, and the French were left shaking their heads once again. This back and forth went on for a few more weeks, and the French, frustrated at what they'd assumed would be an easy capitulation, had to change tact. Their engineers figured that it would be better to get as close as they could to the walls in order to breach them, since they were so thick and well fortified. But in doing so, they ordered the soldiers to dig parallel trenches up to the wall in order to weaken its foundation. And while the plan was smart, it failed to take into account the rocky soil which lay beneath them, and the French spent considerable time digging, and it pushed them well into the spring and early summer of 1806. And, of course, this was all done, by the way, under heavy cannon fire from Hesse's men, so yeah, morale was pretty low on the Italian coast for Massena's army. Still, by the end of June, the French were within 200 yards of Gaeta's walls, and Massena decided to take personal command of the siege to finish off this pesky German general once and for all. So by early July it became readily apparent that the Neapolitans would be unable to withstand the siege for much longer. The French had concentrated their fire, and their close proximity meant that they were able to hit magazine houses inside the city, causing numerous casualties while also robbing the Neapolitans of precious ammunition. Now, Hess had wanted the British to help in their defense, but old friend Admiral Sidney Smith was busy dealing with all of that locomotion back in Calabria we mentioned a few moments ago, so the best he could do was help in restocking of supplies. Now, further hampering Hess's cause was the fact that he was reluctant to send out probing sorties as many of his soldiers would defect to the French side, usually out of apathy or desperation. But Hess refused to give up, and he ordered the defense to continue in the face of practically insurmountable odds. Casualties were heavy, but eventually the French were able to inch closer and closer to the walls, and then the biggest blow came on July 10th when Hess was seriously wounded by a bursting shell and he needed to be evacuated by sea. His replacement, whose name I won't bother you with, was not up to the caliber of the man he was replacing, and despite refusing to surrender, was no match for the French guns. Two days later, on July 12th, the walls of Gaeta finally began to crack open, and Messina ordered his men to overwhelm the Neapolitans. Now, the French themselves were also running low on ammunition, but Messina felt that he needed to impose a series of shock and awe tactics now in order to capture the fortress because he had just received word of a devastating French defeat suffered only eight days earlier at Maida at the hands of a joint Anglo-Sicilian force. And so, with less than a week left in the War of the Third Coalition, let's back up one more time to July 4th, 1806, 
and talk about the Battle of Maida. The Battle of Maida basically allows us to circle back with Division General Jean Rainier, who is still dealing with trying to put down the various Calabrian uprisings against their occupation. Now, the Royal Navy, sensing an opportunity to take advantage of the French being bogged down at Gato, decided to help stage an expedition into Calabria to further instigate the insurrections, as well as to prevent the French from attempting an invasion of Sicily in their pursuit of King Ferdinand and Queen Maria Carolina. Now, this battle would be one of the few times as the British and French armies would engage each other in a pitched battle during the Napoleonic Wars, the most famous being, of course, Waterloo, which was the only time that Napoleon actually faced the British on the field of battle in his entire career. This battle, though, is far less known, but the result would end up being the same, a British victory, so let's see how. The British were led by Major General John Stuart, a 47-year-old who was born in the modern-day U.S. state of Georgia while it was a colony of the then-British America. Serving under the crown during the American Revolution and being present at the Siege of Yorktown, Stuart would go on to serve the British Army during Napoleon's failed Egyptian campaign, after which he became a general. He was stationed at Naples prior to the French invasion in February 1806, but after learning of Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz, he joined the rest of his British and Russian colleagues and left the country. Staying local, though, after he heard of Messina's headache up in Gaeta, he decided to use the situation in Calabria to his advantage. Sailing from Messina on June 27th, he landed at the Gulf of St. Euphemia on the Calabrian coast. I've once heard the funny anecdote that the St. Euphemia is the bend in the top of the foot of Italy. But in any event, after learning of their landing, General Rainier moved to confront them as he and his men were the only force in Calabria. This would prove to be devastating for the French, as we'll see here shortly. Now, the exact size of Rainier's force is disputed. Some sources have it as low as 5,000 soldiers, others have it as high as 6,500, though most usually put it somewhere in between. Regardless, the combined British and Sicilian force was slightly smaller, though they did not realize this until they made initial contact with the French. Once again, Rainier broke camp early on the morning of July 4th and advanced towards level terrain along the nearby Lamato River. Now, both sides believed that they had superior numbers than their opponents, and both sides actually marched parallel to the other. And even after realizing he was outmanned, Stuart did not change his battle plan and sent Sicilian and Corsican divisions as skirmishers to disrupt the main French lines. Once contact was made, volley after volley came at the French, and though they withstood the first two waves, they broke after being faced with a third. Their commander, a general of brigade Louis Furcet Henri Comparé, ordered his men to fall back, but they ran right into the British, and he and the majority of his men were captured in the chaos. After their collapse, Rainier sent in reinforcements from their Polish and Swiss regiments, but despite their valiant efforts, they were also pushed back. With British reinforcements arriving from the coast, Rainier began his retreat, and by the early evening, the battle was over. The British suffered only 45 killed out of a total of 327 casualties, while the French suffered 450 dead, 870 wounded, and 722 captured. The Battle of Maida was a decisive as well as overwhelming British victory, and its main objectives were achieved. The French would not invade Sicily, and the political situation in southern Italy would remain unchanged until Waterloo. Having said that, as we mentioned earlier, Stuart and Smith were unable to assist the Neapolitans in their defense of Gato, 
and thus they missed an opportunity to further inflict additional damage to Messina's campaign and to possibly overthrow Joseph Bonaparte as King of Naples. Which, of course, brings us back to the final days of the Siege of Gaeta, and by default, the official end of the War of the Third Coalition. After Messina learned of Rainier's disaster in Calabria, as understanding his own dwindling supply situation, the imperative to capture Gaeta had never been higher. Now, there are differing reports of how much ammunition and food Messina had left to sustain the siege, but it was likely less than a week. At this point, most commanders would have rationed off what they could until they could be resupplied. But with the looming British threat now realized, Messina doubled down on his efforts and prepared for an all-out assault on the town. With the bombardment continuing, more and more breaches were seen, and Messina, knowing that Hess was no longer commanding the Neapolitans, decided to overwhelm his replacement. Amassing a large force of grenadiers and chausseurs to attack the left and right breaches on the walls, Messina hoped that seeing the force would force the Neapolitans to surrender. They did not call his bluff, and at 3 p.m. on July 18, 1806, the Neapolitans waved the white flag, ending the siege of Gaeta, and, by extension, finally, ending the hostilities of the War of the Third Coalition. As we mentioned, once Gaeta capitulated, the political situation in southern Italy would be confirmed for almost 10 years. But the resources that the French had to expend on Gaeta, in addition to the strong Royal Navy presence in the Mediterranean, meant that the French could not expand on their gains and take control of Sicily. Furthermore, the rebels in Calabria would be a mighty thorn in the side of the French for the next year, further draining critical manpower and resources in a region that was strategically critical in projecting power over the Mediterranean. But with that said, we're going to leave it here for this week. Next episode, we're going to go back in time once again, and we're going to go back to Vienna, where Napoleon was busy at work formulating his plans to redraw the map of Central Europe. And meanwhile, the coalition allies were back at work formulating plans on how they were going to stop this brilliant and dangerous general from taking over the entire continent. <laughs>